third of New Zealanders have private health cover. In Auckland, it's 44%, right? So you have a large proportion of the population whose needs probably are being met, who think the health system is doing pretty well. But then you have a population whose needs are definitely not being met. So I can tell you that the waiting list at the moment at counties Manukau, if you've got severe endometriosis, you will be waiting three years for your surgery. Oh and my most of the women on that waiting list are Māori. But those women are not heard, okay? So we have this problem where the greatest inequities go unnoticed because the populations who suffer them don't have a way to get their concerns up the chain. Kia ora koutou and welcome to Revolving Door Syndrome. I'm Dr. Nina Sue, your friendly neighbourhood paediatric and emergency doctor. My day job is helping sick kids get better. But lately, I felt like I'm pushing a revolving door round and round in circles. I patch these kids up, send them back to the environment that made them sick in the first place, and they come right back through those hospital doors again. Together with my partner, Connor, we've created this podcast to deep dive into the reasons for our broken systems and perhaps find some real solutions. This podcast was made in association with the School of Medicine, University of Auckland, and sponsored by MedWorld. On this episode of Revolving Door Syndrome, we've got Dr. Orna McGinn. She's a GP with special interest in women's health and the chair of the New Zealand Women's Medicine Trust, a lecturer at the university, and the lady who's responsible for us having free Myrenas. Welcome to the podcast. Kia ora, Nina. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you for coming. So what's made you passionate about women's health and primary care? First of all, thank you so much for the introduction. I definitely cannot take all the accolades, particularly around Myrena being funded, because that was a huge piece of work of which I was one part in. It does, uh, it does say your name on it when I look at the petition for Myrena availability. <laughs> yes, no, I, I did. I did start a petition. I was really to highlight uh, the fact that we had this very basic piece of contraception available in New Zealand for twenty years, but it still was unfunded. Yeah, that that bit of advocacy was effective, but I definitely wasn't the only person. <laughs> but thank you. So, how did I get involved in women's health? I've been a GP for around twenty years. I've been in New Zealand for twelve years. In the UK, a large part of my practice was within women's health, particularly contraception. I had a contraception clinic, which I did for the UK equivalent of family planning regularly. And it had always been a part of my practice that I'd really enjoyed. And I suppose I assumed I'd be able to carry on doing that when I came to New Zealand and hopefully be a trainer, a LARC trainer, because that pathway was very well established in the, long in the UK. Rever- long-acting reversible contraception. Long-acting reversible contraception. So we're talking about IUDs and implants. So that training scheme is very well established in the UK in order to be a trainer. It was fairly onerous. You had to do a diploma in medical education. and But that was going to be the next step when I, before we decided to move to New Zealand. So I moved here, probably assumed I'd be able to do something similar here and was quite surprised to find out that that pathway wasn't available. Not only that I couldn't become a trainer, but that that wasn't even a training scheme. And not only that, but the methods of contraception I had been really used to organising for my patients were simply not available here. So I began to do a little bit more research into some of the barriers around women's health in New Zealand. I was very surprised, actually, in not only what was not available for women, but actually in the glaring inequities, which were obvious. I'm a County's Manukau GP. I've always worked in County's Manukau. And so 
again, for my patients, I could see every day that their access to healthcare and their outcomes were not the same as some other women. And like in practice, what does that look like? What does that look like? Not long after I arrived in, in New Zealand, there was an external inquiry into the Women's Health Department in my local hospital, Middlemore Hospital, because the, they had an excess perinatal mortality rate. This is where babies babies die soon after birth. And the inquiry showed that there was, as usual, it's never down to one thing. There's, it's usually a number of failures and barriers within the system but some of the ones that really caught my eye were the lack of access to contraception that that was felt to be a a contributor lack of access to really good contraception advice to methods and this then goes back to there not being funding for things like marina and for there being no training in primary care so i think that really piqued my interest and I thought I know that one person can't really make a difference here so who would I bring this to who would I talk to and I just began to collaborate with some really amazing mentors and I do want to give a shout out here to Professor Leslie McCowan who's recently retired but she is a reproductive health specialist with a particular interest in maternal and fetal health and she had been sitting on that inquiry at County's Manukau DHB so I I reached out to her and then we had a, a very helpful collaboration over the next few years into how to advocate effectively for women in order to make a difference, how to bring things up the chain. So going back to the interplay of good contraception and perinatal mortality, like how does that relate? This again has been borne out in inquiries which have been published over many years. There, there was an inquiry, I think it was 2014, into adverse outcomes for children and how to lower the perinatal mortality rate. And again, one of the things that came out was access to good contraception for women, good good advice. Poverty has such an enormous impact. This is a whole of society issue, but some really basic things include addressing the unintended pregnancy rate in New Zealand, which is over 50%, because an unintended pregnancy has a higher rate of stillbirth, prematurity, lots of adverse outcomes. And the other thing which makes a difference is having a bigger inter-pregnancy outcome. So women really having at least 18 months, perhaps two years between pregnancies mean those pregnancies are likely to be healthy and successful. And this then rests on having access to good advice about contraception. So there's, there we are. The other thing about contraception is that the methods we use have so many other beneficial effects. And we were talking about the Mirena, but obviously the other thing that Mirena does is it is reduces the heaviness of periods, abnormal uterine bleeding. This is the other massive issue we have in New Zealand. Our gynecological cancer with the highest rate and the highest mortality is endometrial cancer. This predominantly affects Pacific women. And the reason for that is because it's strongly correlated with BMI, rates of obesity. We don't even have a a guideline for heavy menstrual bleeding in New Zealand. Really? Yeah. We need New Zealand-specific guidelines as to how to deal with this. It's really a shame. So anyway, the reason I bring that up is because if you speak to Pacific women about contraception and you mention to them, oh, this is do you, this is also likely to make your periods lighter. And did you know that it actually reduces the rate of you developing abnormalities in the womb lining, which might lead to cancer? They have already heard about endometrial cancer in their communities. They'll say, oh, I had an auntie with that. I didn't really know about it. I didn't know that it was connected to weight. I didn't know there was any reason I could reduce my risk. There is a role for us being better at educating and getting good information out there. 
So if you were to live in South Auckland, how easy is it to access a marina insertion? So if we're talking about barriers, I guess, to specific aspects of women's health, first of all, there's knowledge and education. So that's that really that's really the first step. People have to know how their bodies work and know what's normal in inverted commas or what maybe is important to seek help about. And often that knowledge is not out there. It's difficult for Pacific and Maori women. Often this is what I'm told. And in fact, women from the Chinese community as well. Um, I have a lot of patients from China and Southeast Asia and again, very hard to talk about women's health issues. So it's a difficulty in gaining the education and the knowledge. So there's that barrier. Even when you do decide you have an issue that you'd like to discuss with somebody, identifying a healthcare professional who has an expert knowledge of women's health is currently not actually possible. Australia have done a huge amount of work on this. They have a network called AUSCAPS, A-U-S-C-A-P-S, which is a primary care network of lark inserters and abortion mm. providers. It's something that would be amazing if we had it here, but there is no way at the moment that women can identify where they can get the information from. We are moving away from a DHB system, but the boundaries are still there. And each DHB district at the moment has different criteria for women to access funded contraception and it's opaque it'll be very difficult for women to actually find out if they're funded or not i released a paper on this a year or two ago after the ministry of health put out funding for for larks for some women and the funding was to go to women who were living in areas of deprivation and women who were at risk of an adverse outcome of pregnancy but to be honest for most women, an unintended pregnancy, or for a number of women, an unintended pregnancy would be an adverse outcome. But different areas chose to decide what those criteria consisted of. And so some areas chose to restrict the funding to, say, women who had a drug or an alcohol problem or women who'd had previous termination. And that does then create a scenario where, as a GP, you have to ask your patient some quite invasive questions to find out if they are funded. When we should probably just fund it. <laughs> it's difficult to see what the downside of universally funded contraception is. Yeah. I'm not sure there is a downside, to be quite honest. I think you'd have to call this out for what it is and it's rationing. It's, yeah. it's, you can't pretend it's equitable. Yeah. And particularly when you wouldn't dream of asking those questions if a woman came requesting a termination of pregnancy. There are The only question you ask is, is, is this pregnancy something you're happy to go ahead with or not and if the answer is no then you refer on to your local abortion provider yeah. but you certainly don't ask invasive questions to find out if the woman deserves funding because there are all sorts of things in sexual health that i find are very invasive there have been a couple of times where i'm seeing patients in the emergency department who are requesting post-exposure prophylaxis for prevention of hiv transmission and you have to ask some very invasive questions for them to qualify for this which is crazy because it's actually now a lot easier to qualify for pre-exposure prophylaxis because i think until last year or the year before, like you had to have really high risk sexual activity to qualify for pre-exposure prophylaxis. But only now we're like, okay, no, if you're high risk enough, then the, whoever's prescribing it can just be like, okay, like you met the criteria, go. It, it doesn't really make any sense. We don't need to know exactly who is doing what with how many people, when and where. <laughs> no, that's invasive and stigmatizing. Yeah. And to my mind, the approach to a lot of aspects of women's health has also been invasive and stigmatising. And it's really time for us to move away from that. And that's what I hope will 
be focused on in the women's health strategy, which is currently under development. I want to ask another question about Myrena's in particular. Personally, me, I've got one. It's really great for me. I have no periods at all, which is really great. And obviously the contraception side is really great. But what I will talk about is the insertion of having the marina. So I got mine done through family planning. The process was fine, but I found the insertion quite difficult. And I know that a lot of people have also had difficulties with marina insertions, like whether or not it's done by a GP who's done it a few times or by someone from family planning who that's like their main job is inserting marinas or other IUDs. Now, is there a place for local anaesthetic or sedation in something like a marina insertion? Okay, so we're getting into quite specifics here. So I teach, I'm a trainer, so I train people to insert myrenas. I do a lot of workshops around IUD insertion. And the most important thing is actually the atmosphere in the room. So if you have a calm and competent practitioner, you then end up with a calm patient. And that is of far more value, and this has been borne out in studies, or far more value than local anaesthetic. So there is no hard and fast rule about anaesthetic for IUD insertion. So I wouldn't necessarily want to focus on that. If we're sharing stories, I've had five Myrenas. <laughs> so, because I've had two children and I'm a bit older than you, Nina. It is absolutely fine as long as you are well prepared, you've been given good information and the practitioner who you're with has a nice calm manner. Personally, I put music on in the background as well. I'm lucky enough to have the resource of a fabulous nursing assistant who calms the patient and sits at the head end. So th this is the most important thing. So if you think about it, having local anaesthetic injected into your cervix is not particularly nice either. And actually that's been shown to be no more effective than say spraying lidocaine on the cervix. But we actually don't have access to that in New Zealand anyway. There will always be variation in the level of discomfort that a patient experiences. But as I always say to my patients, if when I put this in, 95% of my patients ended up in tears or wouldn't recommend this to their friends because it was so painful, there's no way I would have been doing this for the last 20 years. But because the patients get up off the couch, pretty much always say, wow, that wasn't nearly as bad as I thought, that then gives me the confidence to know that I think I'm doing an okay job. This is all right. I mean, I know this patient won't mind me sharing this, but like one of one of my patients, I ended up doing the myrenas of four or five people in my practice. One of them was one of the ladies on reception who just literally came off reception, hopped on the bed, and then went back to reception. She didn't even go and sit in her car for half an hour. And that was pretty surprising. But because she was confident and she had confidence in me, that made a lot of difference. I think some of the perceptions are down to New Zealand historically not having a robust training pathway. And the expertise has been held within family planning who have an enormous amount of expertise, but they do sit separately from primary care. I think there's not been the knowledge sharing that we need. But again, I, I really hope that will change going forward with this women's health strategy. Because what's happening with between like within general practice, like in the College of Gen GPs, like what's happening in the space of GPs with special interests? This term was coined in the year 2000 as part of the NHS plan of that year, which was to integrate primary and secondary care and create roles in a kind of third space where there was an extra level of expertise to try and increase the amount of care that was done in the community. This terminology has changed now. So since 2015, these roles have been known as GPER, so GPs with extended roles. In Australia, the College of GPs recognised 33 subspecialties. So you name it, 
they have a special interest group. What it means is that the, their college has special interest groups run by AGP with that special interest who run teaching and a webinar or two per year and facilitate a forum and networking for GPs who have those special interests. And you can nominate yourself and put yourself on that forum. And it means you end up with an awful lot of peer support and knowledge sharing. I think this would be incredibly valuable in New Zealand. And this certainly is needed in the health workforce. For the moment, in, in women's health, you could spend a whole year doing the diploma of Robson Gynae, for instance. Very expensive if you are not in the hospital. Really, no GPs do it. You do it when you're in the hospital. But you don't come out with any practical skills. So you don't come out knowing how to insert larks or ring passeries or do a papal biopsy. So I have a new role at the University of Auckland, which is hoping to try and work up a framework here and facilitate this, this pathway. And in terms of like women's health, do you do much in the obstetric side and primary care? Next to none. And this is a shame. And it's one of those silos which has led to a major de-skilling in primary care. So again, quite a surprise when I got to New Zealand. In the UK, GPs have not delivered babies for ages. The generation above me, a few of them may have done. And I'm the generation above you, I think. <laughs> so it's not, it's not something that's been done for a, a very long time. But certainly we had shared antenatal care. So I was quite used to examining pregnant women. I'm not a midwife, I'll make that clear, but I can listen to a fetal heartbeat. I can, I can, ex- I can examine an abdomen. I can say which way up the baby's sitting. <laughs> I can say how, it's, what's the fundal height. I can dip the urine. I can do the blood pressure. I can assess if someone is developing preeclampsia. So you can do that basic stuff. So that's what shared care would consist of. And the patient held the notes. So I got here and discovered that as soon as a woman found out she was pregnant, my role here as a GP is just to say, congratulations, hand her the URL of the Find Your Midwife website, give her a form to go and get an ultrasound scan and then say, sayonara, I'll see you at the six-week check when your baby is born. And then the woman would literally fall through a hole in the ground and I would hear nothing after that, except if she had trouble accessing a midwife because in some areas of the country, that is a big issue. Well, I don't think it's just some areas. I think it's the whole country at the moment. I would agree with you. You know, I have all these... When I was working in the, the NICU, the neonatal intensive care unit, you'd have a few mums who delivered their babies early for whatever reason. It would be... They didn't have any antenatal care and there would be this feeling like, oh, you know, this woman didn't have antenatal care. They didn't have their dating ultrasound, so we don't actually know how far along this baby is and there's that sense that this was this mum was like not a good mum not from me but just felt from like the team that feeling of like oh this mum didn't do the right thing which was get an ultrasound scan at the time to actually establish when this baby was due and all that but since leaving NICU and working in other places now I'm working in the emergency department I see a whole range of things we realize that actually it's so hard to one get a midwife these days and two it's so hard to access an ultrasound especially because all of these women were low socioeconomic position women who didn't necessarily have the money to go pay for the the co-pays for an ultrasound because it could be anywhere between I don't know like $50 to $300 per scan there are some places where you can get funding for it I think in counties Monaco but you have to have had a midwife to give you this like 
sort of voucher so then you can go and access this this ultrasound scan with the for free which is crazy because I'll have women come in like early like they don't know what gestation the baby is because they can't remember when their last menstrual period was because their periods have always been irregular and they don't have a midwife but we think that they're already 11 or 12 weeks through yes they've seen their GP and had like their antenatal screening bloods which is really great but they haven't had their scan for some reason and because we're the emergency department like I wanted to help this woman at access a scan but I'm not allowed to request the scan because then I'm not going to be the one that's following up but then this lady's just going to have to find a GP and then or she might have a GP but can't book in for another two weeks and it just I think what you're saying is it's a shit fest can I say that yes (laughs) it is look completely agree it's we make it too hard we just make it too hard for women why have they got to go off and find their own midwife yeah why do they have to pay for their antenatal scans? There are probably people listening to this podcast who are like, what do you mean antenatal scans are free? No, they're not. So if we don't even know what these boundaries are and where, what the barriers are, how can we then address them? Who's doing the stock take of all this work? The perinatal statistics for New Zealand are shameful. The latest report came out not long before Christmas, of the Perinatal Mortality Committee. And that showed that our perinatal mortality has not moved since 2007. That is a disgrace. It also showed that the main reason for women dying around the time of birth is suicide. And if you are a Maori woman, you are 2.9 times more likely to die of suicide. How can this be acceptable? It is time for this women's health strategy, which is now written into legislation, to urgently have at the top of their agenda the red flags which have been highlighted to successive governments, even just since I've been here the last 12 years. At some stage, somebody has to pick those up and a strategy is the time to do it. So it would be very good to see some movement on that. Yeah. When you say things as like happening, the perinatal mortality being so bad and still unchanged in 2007. You know, the other day we had a teaching session about psychiatric stuff and we talked about postnatal depression and psychosis. And then there was a statistic put up on the slide saying one in a thousand women who have been pregnant can end up with postnatal psychosis. It's not rare. I've seen it and I only work part-time. I've seen it several times. There's plenty of things I haven't seen in my career. But yes, I have seen appalling postpartum psychosis and postnatal depression, which pretty much spills over into psychosis. And getting these women into respite or getting urgent help is very difficult. The last time the national government previously, this is what three governments ago now, they looked at developing a sexual and reproductive health strategy and it fell over because it just got too big. The remit became too wide and it just fell over. I think with this chance to do literally once in a generation change for women, We need to focus on the things that are really urgent and make some changes there rather than trying to do absolutely everything. So in the women's health strategy that you've been part of, and it's written into the Pie Order Act, is that right? Yeah, well, the only part I've had is is that women in medicine put in a submission. So what's the point of this women's strategy? Initially, the Pie Order legislation was going to incorporate a Māori health strategy, Pacific health strategy and a disability strategy. But it was really obvious that those were not going to address the health of women because women's health 
cuts across each of those. Health inequity is highly gendered. If you are a woman, you experience health inequity, full stop. All the things we've been discussing, you are taxed from the minute you're born. You're going to have to pay for menstrual products. You pay for your cervical screening. In what universes is that fair or normal? You pay for your antenatal scans, as we've said, up until very and recently. There's also some other really interesting research that I've seen as well, is that um, if you look into like outcomes as well, if you're a woman and you've got a woman surgeon, or if you're a woman and you've got a male surgeon, your outcomes are going to be really different. So if you've got a, if you're a woman with a female surgeon, you're going to have better outcomes than if you've got a male surgeon. But if you're a man, you'll have no difference in outcomes whether your surgeon is female or male. There's all of those sorts of things. There are certain inequities which are baked into that as well. Pay parity is an issue. But if we're, if we're looking at women's health and why a strategy is needed, it's because women's health is closely interlinked with poverty, housing, deprivation. It cuts across all the other three strategies. And anyway, apart from anything else, New Zealand is one of very few rich OECD countries which does not have a women's health strategy. The fact that we really even had to petition separately for it to be included in the Piora legislation is a shame, but it is wonderful that it is now in there. But there, I think there will be some momentum needed to ensure that... What is the strategy in this women's health strategy? No, we don't know yet. It's they're at the sort of information gathering stage. I see. Yeah. I see. But I would hope that it would bring together some of the existing pieces of work, like there is a maternity action plan. There's the new ACC legislation to fund traumatic birth injuries. That's literally just come in. It's crazy though, isn't it? That ACC wasn't funding traumatic birth injuries. So you have a tear or something like that or a fistula or something like that. And ACC would be like, no, that's just like standard. Like that's just going to happen if you have a baby and it's your fault for having a baby. Yeah, yeah. That was very sad, I have to say, before before it became funded. It looks now like it's going to hopefully make a significant difference to women but we do need a skilled workforce who can recognize say some of those birth related injuries further down the track like prolapse you do need a gp to be able to recognize a prolapse and refer on appropriately and perhaps to do initial management with a pessary so we these are things which we don't have in place yet yeah so some work to be done If you like this podcast and want to stay updated on the newest content, follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Revolving Door Syndrome. Send us a DM or leave a comment. We'd love to hear from you. So how can we incorporate extra training for GPs? Because it's my understanding that the GP training program can start from after you've had two years as a hospital house officer and you can go into general practice. And it's my understanding that's basically one year supervised in a general practice and then two years working relatively independently and then you're a GP. Is that correct? I'm not as familiar with the New Zealand training as in the UK. In the UK, you do blocks of six months as a junior doctor. And I was talking to you earlier, I did two and a half years as a junior doctor with six months palliative care, almost a year in women's health, 
additional paediatrics in a nose and throat accident emergency and general medicine. So it gives you a really good grounding. And I did additional qualifications in family planning and contraception and obs and gynae. But I'm not sure what the training is here, but I would, I would encourage people who are thinking of going to general practice to certainly try and get as much women's health experience as they can. But yes, you're never going to be able to gain all the skills you need while you're doing your hospital run. So I, I hope that what we will see coming online is more joined up education provision, which then links to practical training opportunities. So you are literally training people for the job that they are going to do. So I, again, I hope with the role that I'm doing at the University of Auckland, I'm, I might be able to have some input into that, but we'll have to watch this space. Yeah, because I think the way that I see it is that in general practice training, vast majority of it happens in general practice kind of environment and I know that some people do spend time during their two years of independent practice they can come back to hospital and do six months and say children's emergency or six months in dermatology or whatever or they might like you say do a obstetric and gynecology diploma and things like that but I think for vast majority of GPs in New Zealand once they've left hospital to go to primary care they don't really come back for whatever reason who wants to choose to do night shifts and weekends and all that not many people <laughs> I might choose not to do that one day and I just wonder if there's like a place for better collaboration and training between primary care and say secondary care but like you say if you do an obstetric and gynecology diploma you may not even still get your experience doing things like long acting reversible contraception and all those like things that could be done in primary care like a power biopsy and bringing that out of the hospital and into community where it's more accessible. I don't know how it would work for all specialties, but certainly for women's health, there are a lot of opportunities to make education and training more accessible in the community. The concept of women's health hubs has really taken off the last few years in the UK. And these hubs can either be a physical clinic in the community or more of a virtual clinic, a, an area of expertise, a group of GPs who secondary care all primary care can refer to. And these hubs will look after some of the things we've been talking about, like contraception, abnormal uterine bleeding. They will change or replace ring pessaries. And they can be used as training centres. Some of them will also do medical abortion as well. That's another area which is not yet accessible. Oh, yeah. What do you, you think care. about that? Because in the very recent past, I haven't been involved in obstetrics and gynaecology for some time since I was a student, basically. But at that point, five, six years ago, which actually might have changed now, but at that point anyway, the only place that you could get an abortion was at the Green Lane or Epsom Day Unit or whatever it's called. And that's for the entire Auckland region. So you could live far up north as Wellsford and have to come down to Auckland or you could live down south as far as like Pocono or something and have to come up to the Epsom Day Unit to get your two different appointments on two different days with two different doctors to get assessed as allowed to have this medical termination of pregnancy. Now, in the UK, have they had better experience of having more community-led medical terminations? The landscape is changing really rapidly here in New Zealand as well, actually. So obviously we had the change in legislation in 2020, change in abortion legislation, which specifically was to make abortion available in the community. So what has happened is telemedicine is now being used in some areas and medical abortion has vastly, the uptake has increased hugely. This is positive. And you mentioned Epsom Day, you know, obviously that's part of Auckland District Health Board where I was women's health primary care 
clinical director. And I know that Epson Day Unit have done an enormous amount of work to ensure that their services are accessible and equitable. They've streamlined their processes. You need one appointment. You don't always need a scan before you go there. So there's a lot of work being done on that. What isn't available at the moment is really for women to access abortion in primary care. The expertise isn't there yet, but abortion is definitely more accessible than it was. There is some way to go. Again, I think developing a network of competent practitioners is going to be key, as they have done in Australia with the OSCAPs. Right, so right now, if you, say, lived in Wellsford and you needed a medical termination of pregnancy, you could access this telemedicine and you wouldn't have to go anywhere. You could just have an online appointment and then just send the prescription to the local pharmacy and you'd be... Yeah, this Fine. this is what should be able to happen. So anyone can access abortion now by going to the Decide website and then finding their nearest provider there and accessing services via by the website. And if, say, you had that medication, the medical termination, something went wrong, it didn't completely go right, you haven't quite terminated the pregnancy, what happens then if you're, say, living in Wellsford? Then you would have to ring the provider who organised the abortion for you, which in Auckland is still going to be Epsom Day Unit or AMAC, Auckland Medical Aid Centre. And this really is one of the main barriers to primary care taking on this work because your GPs work part-time and don't really do after hours so it's difficult for an individual GP to take on the responsibility of abortions right now because the backup services are we're not totally clear what the backup services are so there's still a little bit of work to do there. Something else I want to ask you about is the work that you've done about GP burnout. Sure, I'm happy to talk. I'm happy to speak to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Burnout, burnout in primary care has become a, a very hot topic, and I've been there. I had to take a bit of time out myself, and there is a number of reasons for this, and I'm not really sure that they are currently being addressed. I've interviewed a number of GPs who have self-identified as having been burnt out and have either left the professionals together or have taken time out and gone back and done things differently. And I suppose the reason I did this was until you have specific stories to identify with, it's difficult to pique people's interest in this. It's always the personal stories which will make people identify with what's happening. You can say that 30% of GPs are going to retire within the next three years because they're all exhausted, but that's just a statistic. But when you speak to GPs and find out what's actually been happening, you begin to wonder why there's a workforce at all. Um, (laughs) Why would anyone choose to do medicine? I don't know. Because it's an amazing career, but unfortunately the job has changed, but the system we work in hasn't changed in the same way unfortunately so for the gps i've interviewed there are so many common themes running through and these are gps running from fairly newly qualified maybe being a gp for five years or less all the way up to people who might have been working for 20 plus years and they all cite the same things really a lack of support the isolation of being a gp the fact that gps are shouldering so much responsibility for individual patients the complexity of those individual patients is unbelievable the amount of things that we are expected to know and hold now is hugely more than when i qualified as a gp 20 years ago and so 15 minute appointment situation and i talk to people and they're young healthy people and they'll be like oh yeah when i go see my gp i save up three or four things to talk about with my gp and those are the young healthy people i have to say that always 
my, always die a little bit inside when someone says, I never come to the GP. So I always bring a list when I do come. I say, oh, it'd be lovely if you just came more regularly and just yeah. brought maybe one or two things. But yeah, so there's, there's, but the paperwork, that's the thing which people say, if they could fit everything in a day, it would be such a great job. But at the end of the day, you've still got two or three hours of unpaid time. Not one GP said, please pay me more and I'll enjoy my job more. It's, the, it's really the conditions around it. And some of these stories are heartbreaking. People having panic attacks at work, breaking down in tears, pretty much almost losing their marriages through the stress of work, disconnecting from their families. And the GPs who've gone back tend to lease themselves back as locums, which means that they have more control over their workload. They are no longer the named person who patients are registered with, there's mm. a bit of distance, and they can leave at the allotted time and the paperwork is someone else's problem. There, there are various people doing some work on how we can make this role more sustainable and it might be that we become community physicians in the same way that SMOs in the hospital do that we are not holding everything to do with each individual patient but we have a, a team under us who are collaborating with us to manage those patients and it's more of a multidisciplinary input and we're not having to look at every single inbox result because actually it simply is not sustainable. And the GPs that you've talked to who've been burned out do they say what things could be done to make it better? Yes, that was one of the questions that I have been asking. What do you think could have made a difference to ameliorate this situation or avoid this situation? And most of them have said they, they would like to have known that there was help available. It is so isolating being a GP. A lot of people, you feel a failure if you can't manage your workload because it looks like everyone else is managing. And it's been difficult, I think, the last few years when everyone was struggling to keep their head above water, obviously because of COVID. You did not want to be the person letting the side down, complaining that you were drowning. So feeling that you could ask for help, actually feeling that you that there was a way to make change. It has been pointed out that even if you do fewer sessions, and certainly I've, I found this myself, the patients that you have still generate a disproportionate amount of work for the sessions that you're doing. 12 hours paid will generate eight hours of unpaid. That's the way it is. That is not sustainable. You just won't find another job where that's just an accepted part of the role. So really what has been suggested is finding a way to manage your inboxes, to have more collaboration, to look after patients, to be able to access secondary care or specialist advice so that your referrals aren't always bouncing back. <laughs> because then you own that, you hold that problem. And if you're holding a problem, again, if you have a number of complex patients, you only need one or two patients who've got borderline personality disorder or who have chronic suicidal ideation or frail elderly patients with multiple problems you've only got to have a few patients with these issues and your workload will be heavy and I think you were implying earlier that there was a sort of gender inequity in patient load between male and female GPs and that can be a factor as well that female GPs are holding a lot more women's health and psychiatry problems mm. and those patients cannot easily fit into that one single issue 15 minute model so yeah we need to be thinking carefully about what a, a new general practice primary care model looks like. What do you think it should look like? Or if you could change one thing about how primary care or women's health is delivered, what would you change? Two different questions, aren't they? But I can bundle them into one. I think encouraging GPs to take an interest in something which brings them joy is really important. So it has protects against burnout. If a GP knows that one day a week they're going to be doing skin cancer surgery or a lot clinic, then they know that they've got a day where their time is fairly allotted and they are doing something which they really enjoy, which they are very good at. They have a skill. 
So something like that would make a difference. But I think even more than that, it's approaching just basically community medicine as a specialty with a framework around it, a little bit like we've traditionally expected in secondary care, where you have a whole team who holds these patients. I think it is very important for the patient to have a relationship with people within that team because that is what they value more than anything. And that's what we as GPs value more than anything. We get to know our patients. It is such a privileged position. We get to know their families. They feel able to bring things to us that they can't bring to other clinicians. It's such an incredible relationship and you wouldn't want to lose that. But there must be a way of, I think, sharing the load. Our patients are also incredibly grateful to have our skilled nurses who they talk to. You you had this whole team approach, I think, will make the difference. And why do you think we, for so long, have done so poorly with women's health in New Zealand? That is a really interesting question and it is something I have thought about constantly for several years. So everything is multifactorial, all right? So I see it as a number of things. We have a two-tier health system. So anywhere you go in New Zealand, a third of New Zealanders have private health cover. In Auckland, it's 44%, right? So you have a large proportion of the population whose needs probably are being met, who think the health system is doing pretty well. But then you have a population whose needs are definitely not being met. So I can tell you that the waiting list at the moment at Counties Manukau, if you've got severe endometriosis, you will be waiting three years for your surgery. And most of the women on that waiting list are Māori. But those women are not raising their voices. They're not heard, okay? So we have this problem where the greatest inequities go unnoticed because the populations who suffer them don't have a way to get their concerns up the chain. I think there's a degree of complacency here. I think no one has owned this problem. You don't have one body advocating for women. Ranscog, for instance, which is the Obzungaini College, they sit across Australia and New Zealand, but most of their focus is in Australia. So that's a different system from the RCOG, the College of Obzungaini in the UK, strongly advocate for women's health. And they have a faculty of sexual and reproductive health, with which any GP who's got an interest in women's health will belong to. And they do all the training for larks and contraception. So we don't have the equivalent here. So it's very removed from general practice and primary care. It has been traditionally removed from general practice and primary care. The GP college have, we have incredibly leaders within the GP college, but women's health has traditionally not been within their remit. There's, there are so many things to advocate in primary care that definitely wouldn't have been their main focus. We have a Minister for Women, but the remit does not extend to women's health. So, again, so what's who, the point of the Ministry of Women? I'm probably not the person to ask, answer that because I genuinely don't know. But I have discovered that it, that's not the ministry to talk to about women's health. So, and even within then the Ministry of Health, you don't have a directorate which specifically looks after women's health. Because this have feels very of... similar to how I feel like things are done even in hospital care. Because working in emergency, you obviously have people you send to general medicine or like the subspecialties or surgery or obstetrics and gynecology. But then when you have a woman who is very pregnant, let's say somewhere between 20 and 30 weeks pregnant, but they've got like a medical issue or a surgical issue, you're just like, who's gonna who's gonna take this patient? No, n- neither of you wanna take this patient. And so it just feels like once a woman has a woman's issue, nobody wants to take responsibility. Yeah, and I think that is an issue because Without an obvious point of contact or a place where the responsibility lies, accountability is difficult to enforce. 
And that's something I would love to see. I would love to see women's health just being brought under an umbrella where it was obvious where all the um, programmes which the Ministry of Health look after sit. Again, perhaps, perhaps in the new system that may be something which may happen. So I know that you've recently been overseas and you've had this great journey around the world and then through Southeast Asia. What was your highlight through your trip? Oh, I would say doing a two-week cycle trip through Vietnam. So I'd cycled from Hanoi to Ho Chi Minh with a group. It was an organised it was an organised tour. So that was about maybe 750 kilometres, something wow. like that. Wow. Over what kind yeah. of time? Two weeks? About two weeks. And I got COVID. Oh, no! <laughs> during, the, during the trip. But they couldn't leave me behind. So I just had to get on my bike and keep cycling. So I think I was quite lucky. I didn't have dreadful COVID. So that's probably to do with having had four vaccinations before I left, <laughs> I'd say. But I thinking about it afterwards, that was quite cavalier because obviously we would not advise our patients to cycle 100 kilometres the day you test positive. And I did get a few frenzied WhatsApp messages from friends saying, you'll get myocarditis. But <laughs> I, I touch wood, I seem to be okay. But anyway, so that was my most enjoyable experience. And it was just a good breather after a challenging few years. Yeah, challenging few years in a tricky role. So it's always good to step back and get some perspective. Okay, this is the final question. If you could sit down and have dinner with anybody in the whole world, in the past or present, alive or dead, who would you have dinner with? Ooh, only one person? One person. One person. Or like a a group maybe, a boy band or something, I don't know. (laughs) Oh gosh, oh golly, that is so hard because it depends on what I'm really fired up about like at the right time now, right now. now oh okay this is going to sound really grovelly but probably Rob Campbell <laughs> <laughs> but yeah because he's a fantastic listener he's really approachable and having had a, a couple of coffees with him I think he would be a good person to have dinner with and yeah but that might sound really grovelly <laughs> and I wouldn't want it to oh, well, but if know. he's listening yeah that'd be, that'd be great oh well, he actually has listened to this podcast and he's put it out there so I'll let him know that you're keen for dinner <laughs> um, so thank you so much for coming on Rob Vingdor Syndrome Honor. thanks so much Nina for allowing me to talk about my favourite subject <laughs> Thank you. Revolving Door Syndrome acknowledges Māori as tangata whenua and te tiriti o Waitangi partners in Aotearoa, New Zealand. We recognise the inequities and challenges faced by Indigenous and vulnerable groups and acknowledge our duty to work towards closing the gap. 